You obviously know Kung Fu. Hey, what's up? It's Ernie Reyes Jr. from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you're listening to Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast. Welcome to the Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast. Adjust your speaker box, sit back, relax, and remember, your Kung Fu may be good, but mine is better. My special guest today is Charles Russo, author of Striking Distance. Charles, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with the Kung Fu Driving Podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So your book, Striking Distance, fascinating book. Uh, it's a fascinating look, I think, at the time and the, the places and the people that brought the whole martial arts culture to the U.S., at least to the West Coast, uh, and developed it from rooftop fights to the to the silver screen. But like everything else, it wasn't exactly a neat simple process right in fact at times it was pretty contentious and downright dangerous for some of the players involved and uh, one of the subjects in the book that both contributed to and then later benefited from the rise of martial arts was some guy named bruce lee who probably made a name for himself i'm not sure yet the jury's still out right but <laughs> <laughs> sure sure but uh, congratulations on the book i enjoyed reading it um yeah thank you Personally, I'm, I'm not a martial arts historian. I've never studied the martial arts myself to any degree worth mentioning. <laughs> my love of the martial arts is strictly from the movies that were a huge part of my youth. It's uh, the heavily romanticized, over-dramatized version of Kung Fu that captivated me and for a certain time captivated the U.S., particularly during the 70s and 80s. But what drew you to the subject and got you to put pen to paper for the book? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I definitely come at it from, uh, you know, a different angle as well is, you know, I work as a journalist and uh, uh, I have a degree in history. I love Bay Area history. And um, it, it, it was really just learning for the first time that Bruce Lee was born in San Francisco. You, you know, I live here in the city. I love the city and, and Bay Area history. And, uh, you know, the first time someone told me that, I, I was so you know, I was so fascinated by it, but I was also kind of indignant that no one had ever told me before or that, you know, like the city doesn't celebrate him really as a local son. Right. So so we both grew up in New Jersey and, you know, you drive in a Hoboken and there's a sign that says, welcome to Hoboken, the birthplace of Frank Sinatra. Um, so the idea that San Francisco doesn't embrace, you know, or really hasn't in the past, this global icon that, you know, really kind of inspires people around the world uh, was very surprising to me. So as a journalist, I kind of said, well, there must be a good story there. And, um, you know, I eventually got around to looking into it and I didn't think that it was going to render much. I thought it would be kind of like a few cool anecdotes about the circumstances of why he was born here. And really, to, to the contrary, I mean, my after my first two interviews, I realized I basically stumbled across uh, an absolute treasure trove of a forgotten history, which was really two things. First of all, it was a very unique and obscure period of young Bruce Lee's life that really shapes him into the icon that we eventually all come to know. Right. Uh, but it was also the story of this entirely trailblazing martial arts culture that existed on San Francisco Bay and which really has an awful lot to do with why the martial arts are as popular as they are in America today. Right. Let's so let's talk about that. The influence of Chinatown in San Francisco, because the way you present it, this is kind of where that all started, right? Uh, well, the Chinese martial arts, I, I mean, their history, 
um, you know, within America, I, I mean, it's really, really fascinating to like take a look at it because initially what we see is that it's, it's tied up in the tongs and essentially associated with gangsterism. And what we see in the, with the, the two modern Kung Fu masters that govern the San Francisco Chinatown martial arts culture is uh, they're, they're straight up, I mean, they're Tong enforcers and they were recruited by the Tongs uh, around the, 1930s and early 1940s basically to help train street muscle and also to basically help with the enforcement of vice around the neighborhood. So they would go around and collect gambling debts. Uh, you know, they would act as bodyguards. They would uh, be bouncers at clubs and, and opium dens and things like that. And, um, you know, so initially that's, that's where the Chinese martial arts sort of like uh, took hold. And it wasn't until these these masters transition into a public school within Chinatown that we suddenly see like like a new setting for it. So all of a sudden, it's not just uh, men associated with the Tongs that are learning Kung Fu, but suddenly any kid who wants to come and learn from these guys can, you know, go to go to their school and learn. And that and that's a big difference. Yeah. And I find it fascinating that. All that street fighting was sort of encouraged by kung fu instructors in that early era. Well, there, there's a difference, though, in in terms of in which locations. So, for instance, you know, even though so Bruce Lee's born in in San Francisco, uh, his, his parents are actually uh, traveling uh, opera performers. Uh, mm-hmm. Bruce's dad was was a very famous actor, and and that's why they were in San Francisco. So he's born here. Uh, in in 1940, but he's here only for a few months, and then they return to Hong Kong. Right. So when Bruce is a teenager, he grows up amongst this very uh, robust, very tenacious street fighting culture in Hong Kong, right. which basically sees all these teenage gangs, uh, or, or really what they were is they were teenage students of different martial arts masters, but they sort of form into gangs and they they try out their skills on on their on the rival schools. Right. And this this develops into like like a serious street fighting culture. In fact, the Hong Kong police deem them to be like deviant youth gangs. So what the kids do is they take the fights up onto the rooftops where no one will interrupt them or report them to the authorities. And uh, yeah, those Hong Kong teachers definitely, uh, you know, encourage their students to go test out what they were learning in the studio and to apply it in real world situations on the street. Now, Bruce's involvement in this very much, it shapes his martial arts worldview for years to come because not only does he have a regard for the practical application of it, but you know, he spent a few years with, with sort of a front row seat watching and observing these fights and, and assessing what really works versus what is just like flamboyant nonsense. And and this is very important because this is something that he'll convey for really the rest of his martial arts career, the importance of just a, a sort of practicality and realism when it comes to fighting as opposed to mythology. Conversely though, compared to Hong Kong, is in San Francisco with uh, the two Tong enforcers that I write about who become sort of the martial arts um, Uh, sort of patriarchs of the martial arts culture. Uh, They, by contrast, run a very rigid, very disciplined culture 
where they don't allow that sort of fighting within the neighborhood and uh, have a very strict code of conduct. So when Bruce shows up to San Francisco's Chinatown in the spring of 1959, uh, the reputation of that Hong Kong culture precedes him here. And he's instantly gets off on, you know, sort of like a, a bad footing with the Chinatown martial arts culture uh, because they, they just they regard him with suspicion and, and things start to go wrong from early on. And over the years, this will culminate in, in the Wong Jackman fight. Now, these Kung Fu challenges, they were a common thing even in, in the Bay Area, right? Well, the Hong Kong culture, it, it was a, almost a regular daily thing in the martial arts culture in Hong Kong. In, in San Francisco, it, it was a more strict, uh, the, the teachers really wouldn't allow that kind of thing to go on. In oh, fact, okay. they frowned upon it because, you know, at the end of the day, it was just bad for business to have, um, you know, all these kids fighting in the streets. Right. And what's really interesting is that if you look at the long view of Chinatown history in San Francisco, uh, as soon as the really the main martial arts master in San Francisco's Chinatown passes away in 67. Uh, shortly after that, the entire neighborhood devolves into youth gang violence. So there was a rigid cult culture in place in terms of what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. Mm -hmm. And and from early on, Bruce Lee was seen in Chinatown uh, as a bit of a hotshot right. and a bit of a troublemaker. In fact, probably my favorite quote in the entire book comes from one of the other Chinatown masters who referred to Bruce Lee as a dissident with bad manners. <laughs> so it's the notion that he's basically this, you know, uh, troublemaker, you know, who's, who's advocating for things outside of what, you know, they see as acceptable. I, I like that quote. There are a couple other quotes that I like. <laughs> One of them is that Bruce Lee looks like Don Knotts, which I, I found hilarious. <laughs> Oh, well, see, that's a that's a funny story is that actually comes from one of the guys that. Uh, so, you know, after Bruce Lee touches down in San Francisco in the spring of 59, he goes up to school in Seattle right. and he goes up there first to finish his high school diploma because he was sort of uh, quickly removed from the the sort of mischievous street fighting, mm -hmm. you know, teenage culture of Hong Kong. His parents very quickly put him on a boat and sent him to back to America uh, to, to basically get out of trouble. And um, he eventually goes up to Seattle. And that quote comes from a guy who wound up being one of Bruce's students. And what he's describing is Bruce giving a demonstration at an Asian uh, heritage festival at the school. And the person in question is a guy named James DeMille, a very sort of tough yep. local street fighter who sees you know, this skinny kid, you know, in a suit giving a demonstration and calling it deadly fighting arts. And James Amile is just very skeptical and, and, and is, you know, almost to the point of, you know, ridiculing Bruce. And uh, Bruce calls him up to do a demonstration and, uh, and really uh, ties up James DeMille and embarrasses him in front of a bunch of people. Right. And and that's just one of many stories of, of this sort of new group of American kids who, who are exposed to uh, Kung Fu for the first time, uh, in this case by way of you know none other than Bruce Lee, and, and very quickly gravitate to him and become his students. And before long, you know, he has his own school uh, in Seattle, which is, which is his first school. 
Right. Now, Bruce sounds like his charisma and his charm were as big an asset for him as his fists and his feet were. Would that be accurate? Yeah. So again, going back to his parents, Bruce Lee was very much born into show business. Um, the reason why he was born in San Francisco was because uh, an opera theater in San Francisco's Chinatown had paid to bring Bruce's dad over to perform for a while and have sort of a run of shows. Uh, prior to Bruce leaving San Francisco, he actually acts in his first movie as a four-month-old baby. Um, and then his dad has him in movies uh, you know, throughout his upbringing in Hong Kong. I think he has 20 films leading up to when he's 18, when he finally has a starring role. So Bruce Lee absolutely understands how to work a room, how to talk to people, and, and how to sell things. And, and this is important to keep in mind because when Bruce gets to America, he at, at any time when he's at like a dance or some kind of performance, he'll grab a down moment like intermission or something and he'll get up on stage and, and give a Kung Fu demonstration. And early on, these demonstrations are just kind of fairly harmless. He's just showing off some moves. But as time goes on, he starts to give very critical uh, viewpoints, which begin to cause some problems uh, in, in the, the local martial arts world. And, uh, and, and that's important to keep in mind in terms of really nailing down what goes on in this period. Yeah, because uh, on the flip side of that, he, he kind of had no filter when it came to that, particularly when he was focusing on criticizing what he saw as inefficiencies or ineffectiveness of some of the martial arts he saw, right? He called it a classical mess. Yeah, so, so Bruce is, you know, this is important to point out, and it, it comes up, it came up a lot throughout my reporting. You know, Bruce could have a very polarizing personality. Uh, on one hand, yes, he could be a very charismatic, charming, fun-loving, funny, you know, very interesting, motivated person. On the other hand, he could be uh, very brash, very egotistical. And uh, when it came to putting out these viewpoints, um, I think the way I characterized it was, you know, he, he had very little regard for the damaged egos yeah. sort, sort of left in his wake. And, you know, when it comes to martial arts culture and then even when it comes to aspects of, of Chinese culture, you know, to have a young guy – uh, on stage criticizing what a veteran master is doing. Uh, you know, you could see where, you know, he got saddled with, you know, the idea of the dissident with bad manners. I mean, to me, that quote is just really uh, perfectly sort of conveys the tensions that he was stoking, you know, within the culture. Yeah. Uh, to piggyback off that quote, I think one of the quotes that he said when he was talking about the the old school Kung Fu was, 80% of what they're teaching is nonsense. Here in America, it's 90%. These old tigers, they have no teeth. Yeah, yeah. Well, that last part we could come back to later when it leads up to the Wong Jackman fight because that's really uh, – that was really the final straw for a lot of uh, uh, martial arts artists in San Francisco's Chinatown because what he's referring to there is – those those old school Tong enforcers that I was talking about. Okay. Um, but But – the earlier part of that quote where he's talking about 80%, 90% is nonsense. You know, again, if we go back to what he had grown up seeing in Hong Kong, Bruce watched and, you know, to, there's debate over how many fights he ha actually had. But, you know, Bruce was very close to this fighting culture. And he, he really 
paid close attention to what worked versus what was just nonsense. So, you know, Bruce over time would really speak to the importance of simplicity. You know, he, he would be very critical of all these sort of grand, you know, flamboyant movements and gestures when, you know, Bruce would look at it as he, he had a very stark view of the reality of street fighting. In fact, uh, I, I spoke with, uh, I interviewed Linda Lee, Bruce's widow, and she said that he would occasionally refer to his approach as scientific street fighting. Mm. So the idea is to um, assess things analytically and critically uh, to remove all notions of, you know, uh, exaggeration and mythology and to have a sense for the reality of street fighting, which is totally unrehearsed, totally spontaneous, uh, unpredictable. And, and, and Bruce constantly was trying to speak uh, to the importance of martial arts skills that could be viable in that context. And as he's doing that and contrasting it to the more, uh, say, maybe classical approaches, you know, he begins to upset a lot of people because, you know, he's, he's essentially saying that a lot of people, uh, a lot of practitioners, uh, their approach is unrealistic and uh, not effective. So let's go back to the Long Beach International, uh, which was a pivotal moment for Bruce. What about that put him on the map, both positively and negatively? Yeah, you know, Long Beach is really a key moment in, in Bruce's uh, career. And if you read any Bruce Lee biography or, or watch any documentary, you know, they'll, they'll definitely feature uh, the Long Beach tournament. What, what I was surprised about was, you know, I, I talked to a lot of people who were there and I, I got sort of a, a, a contrary narrative, which I had never heard before. Um, so just to set the scene real quick is the Long Beach International uh, in 1964 was Ed Parker's um, inaugural uh, sort of great martial arts event. Uh, Ed Parker was a martial arts pioneer that uh, Bruce Lee eventually, you know, starts to collaborate with when he's in Oakland, even though uh, Ed Parker was down in Southern California. Ed Parker had emerged from the uh, sort of melting pot martial arts culture of Hawaii, which was also a very robust scene. And uh, he sets up in Southern California and sort of becomes sort of like the go-to guy uh, for the Hollywood crowd. In fact, uh, Ed Parker was one of the guys who taught uh, karate to Elvis Presley. Oh, okay. um, what Ed Parker does in 64 is he puts on a huge tournament and he invites martial arts masters from around the world to come and give demonstrations. And what he was looking to do is to sort of give some credibility to the martial arts as sort of a athletic endeavor with, within the United States. And he invites Bruce to be one of the uh, presenters, one of the demonstrators. Bruce wants nothing to do with the, with the competition, which he sees as ridiculous. Back then, they didn't have full contact competitions, sort of like we have today with MMA. Instead, it was sort of these like light contact, uh, sort of like what happens at the end of the Karate Kid. And uh, that, that tournament, and Bruce found that to be ridiculous. In fact, he was known to refer to it as uh, organized despair <laughs> because his opinion was that it had nothing to do with actual fighting. Uh, if you look at, you know, he would, also, he would often contrast it to American boxing where he would say, look, you know, you're in the ring. 
it, you know, and you're, you're just duking it out. You don't stop when someone lands a punch. And, uh, you know, Bruce admired boxing in that regard a lot more because he saw it as much more realistic. So Bruce is slated to be a presenter at Long Beach with all these other martial artists. And he is 23 years old at the time. And it's interesting, the night before the tournament, they had a little bit of an impromptu gathering at the hotel everyone was staying at. And, and Bruce got up and gave a demonstration, didn't talk much, but he gave a demonstration that just kind of blew everyone away. So he, he kind of quickly put himself on the map as someone to watch the next day. And, and again, it's fascinating. Bruce really knew what he was doing here. The next day he gets up and kind of gives a scathing lecture. Right. that gets into all of those criticisms we were just talking about. And, you know, what's so interesting to me is I I never came across that in any of the biographies. The, the prevailing story has always been Bruce got up, he did a bunch of fancy stunts, he was very charismatic and funny, and everyone fell in love with him. Uh, and that's partially true. But when I started talking to people, I, I mean, people were saying things like, you know, look, after Bruce's presentation at Long Beach there was a line of guys waiting to fight him uh I had another guy tell me uh you know Bruce got up there and just started trashing people right uh what he was doing was he would emulate their style and he was very good at this he had a knack for it he would emulate their style and then he would kind of step back and pick it apart and explain why it was ineffective so for instance uh he targeted the horse stance which is sort of, you know, for so many styles, it's sort of the foundational, uh, you know, thing that teachers, you know, convey to their students and drill into their students over and over. Uh, Bruce ridiculed the horse stance, right. uh, not only in front of those teachers, but in front of their students. And he said, you know, it was totally uh, imp impractical. He said it had uh, stability, but no mobility, you know, and if you found yourself in a street fight, you know, the, the horse stance wasn't going to serve you well. So Bruce got up there and aired his sort of contrary martial arts worldview and tried to, in his mind, cut through all of the nonsense and the mythology and very quickly put himself on the map again with this sort of dissident perspective that really upset a lot of people. Now, the other narrative that's important in Long Beach is um, there were people in the crowd who basically were enamored with him and then took that back to Hollywood right. and clued in, uh, you know, key producers who would eventually, you know, have Bruce come down to Hollywood and, and give screen tests. So Long Beach really is a seminal moment for Bruce in, in his career because you kind of get so many aspects of, of what his career was all about. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people tend to forget how important his martial arts career was. They, they kind of only think of him on the screen. But in this era, I mean, he genuinely had a trailblazing martial arts career. And one of the things I, I've been arguing was that even if he never broke into Hollywood, even if he never made all those films that we know so well, I still think he would have been a pioneering martial artist, re be remembered as a pioneering martial artist for, for these sorts of contributions. Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of Hollywood, there's a, a movie that came out recently, Birth of the Dragon, which highlights one of those negative reactions from Wong Jackman. And it's a hugely sensationalized fight, but it wasn't Bruce's first test, right? Can you compare this fight 
to that other fight against Yoichi, which oh the, the Seattle fight, sure. yeah, the Seattle fight, yeah, sure. yeah. Well, well, you know, one of the things I should say up front about the movie because it it kind of um, you know it's kind of one of the things that we keep talking about. It, the movie sort of shows kind of for the first time maybe that that really brash. Uh, egotistical side of, of Bruce Lee is, right. is that's my understanding is they, they I, I don't want to say they make him into a villain but uh, by the sound of it he's, he's really kind of a jerk and maybe a little bit of a bully um, it, you know that's kind of a one-dimensional view of Bruce um, I, it, it's important to maybe not just give you know this glossy rendering of the icon where he was the all-knowing philosophical martial arts master uh, that brash side of his personality was was certainly there, but but to but to make that a singular aspect of of his personality, I just think is is way off the mark. So I I don't know. It's one of the things on my mind about the film that that I wanted to point out. The Yoichi Nakachi fight in Seattle uh, is also very important to understanding what what's going on with Bruce in this time. And it's also one of those things that I feel like has always been handled poorly in Bruce Lee's biographies. Mm. Okay. As Bruce is, is settling into Seattle in 1960, 1961, he gains a, a very loyal following of students, uh, very tough guys, very rough and tumble street fighter guys. And, you know, again, Bruce, with his students, they begin to give some demonstrations around town. And Bruce gives one demonstration where he he makes uh, a contrast. He's trying to explain how kung fu is different from karate, which everyone knows a bit better. And he makes a, I, I mean, a pretty harmless, you know, comparison. But he insults a local karate practitioner uh, named Yoichi Nakachi, and Yoichi begins to hound Bruce basically all over school and all over town uh, for a fight, for a challenge match. Essentially, he says, you know, if, if you're going to, um, you know, dismiss karate, then then let's have a fight and just get down to business and see what's what. Uh, Bruce initially tries to avoid this fight. Uh, you know, he had just, in his late teen years, had been in some trouble in Hong Kong. He's trying to sort of, you know, uh, stay out of trouble now in the United States. And he avoids the fight for a while. Yoichi hounds him so much that Bruce finally gives in and they go over to the YMCA uh, in one of the sort of like uh, handball courts and, and have a formal challenge match. And uh, Bruce utterly annihilates Yoichi. Right. Uh, in fact, he, the witnesses, uh, they often refer to it as the 11 second fight because Bruce very quickly just blocks his opening kick drives him across the yard with punches until he bounces him off a wall and then and then finish knocks him out um with a kick to the face as he's falling to the ground right he breaks uh, his eye socket right he fractures his skull around his eye socket Oof. and and knocks him out i mean it's an 11 second knockout and one of the things you know it's interesting i kind of you know dug into this a little bit it, in previous sort of biographical, you know, uh, uh, works on Bruce, they they kind of regard this incident as sort of just like uh, almost just like a funny incident with some guy who didn't know what kind of trouble he was getting into. And what I found was was information on the contrary. Yoichi 
had a very tough street fighting reputation around Seattle. He was 10 years older than Bruce at the time. Right. He had studied martial arts, various martial arts, uh, since I believe he was a, a, a young child growing up in Japan. Okay, uh, the last fight he had had prior to fighting Bruce, um, he was beating a guy really bad, and the guy took a knife out on him, and Yoichi uh, disarmed him and, and beat him further. Wow. All right, so this, this wasn't some chump. Right. That just happened to roll in a Bruce shooting his mouth off. I, I mean, this was like a, a, a notable opponent. And, and Bruce just utterly dominates the fight. Okay, now this is really important for context. Right. Because as Bruce gives more of those demonstrations, and as he gravitates back to the Bay Area for what is, you know, Bruce leaves Seattle to go back to the Bay Area because the San Francisco Bay Area is where the martial arts are happening in America at that time. Uh, based really on sort of the immigration into the Bay Area, you have this amazing cross-section of people from China, Japan, and Hawaii, uh, you know, amongst other places, the Philippines and whatnot within the, within the Pacific there, um, who all sort of bring their respective martial arts styles into the Bay Area and, and just create this very sort of like uh, hot spot and, and Bruce is well aware of this, so he gravitates back to Oakland and hooks up with a very forward-thinking group of martial artists in Oakland. And as they all sort of continue their wavelength, Bruce's demonstrations get more and more outspoken and more and more critical of the prevailing practices. And uh, it, it's really only a matter of time until a second challenge is about to surface, you know, much in the way it had surfaced in Seattle. That led to the confrontation with Wong Jack Man, right? And the philosophy that Bruce has been embracing to this point really got to show itself in that 11-second fight. So how does that contrast to what happened with Wong Jackman? Yeah, so I just a couple things. I mean, as far as, you know, the Wong Jackman fight is really the culmination of Bruce's long-running tensions with Chinatown. Uh, Bruce actually gives a demonstration in the heart of Chinatown uh, a few weeks after Long Beach, okay, in August of 64, uh, where he, he makes the comment, these old tigers have no teeth, um, airs other critical viewpoints. Uh, he, has a, he asks for a volunteer, and it goes wildly wrong, and there's almost a brawl on stage. Uh, the crowd heckles Bruce and boos him, and he signs off from this demonstration by saying, you know, if any of my Chinatown brothers want to come check out my Kung Fu, you can find me other in, over in Oakland. So the Chinatown martial arts world sees this as an open challenge <laughs> to basically anyone in Chinatown. Now, first of all, how the new movie did not capitalize on that incident Right. Is, is crazy to me. I mean, you could not script a more cinematic moment, yeah. you know. Um, the, the really interesting question in terms of what transpires from there is why is Wong Jackman the person that steps forward? It, it's kind of puzzling, actually, and there's different theories on it, but there's not a, necessarily a good official answer. Um, Wong Jackman was new to, uh, was fairly new to Chinatown. Uh, he 
And and again, in compared to the movie, uh, you know, Wong Jack Man was not a Shaolin monk uh, <laughs> on on some kind of pilgrimage. Uh, he was actually the same age as Bruce Lee. They were both 23 years old. Uh, they had both emerged from the Hong Kong culture of Chinatown to relocate to the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, they were both uh, young, uh, very dynamic practitioners of their respective art. And, and that's what's so fascinating about the setup for the fight is it there's this amazing symmetry between the two of them. Uh, almost, almost like, uh, I'm sorry, but it really is almost like this yin-yang sort of symmetry. I mean, Bruce's style is a Southern Shaolin style that is short, compact, and economical. Mm-hmm. Wong Jackman's style is a Northern Shaolin style, which is expansive, long-range, and acrobatic. Uh, Wong Jackman is representing the traditionalists in San Francisco's Chinatown, Bruce Lee is representing a more modern camp on the other side of the bay in Oakland. Uh, Bruce is sort of the loudmouth, charismatic showman. Wong Jackman is sort of the quiet, reserved. Uh, you know, uh, you could see where they they made him into a monk because he has that <laughs> sort of disposition. Right. So it's kind of re- the matchup is just so fascinating. It, it sounds like they knew this movie was going to be made, right? <laughs> Well, it's it really is amazing, and, and that's what's I, that's what's kind of puzzling about about the film is there, there's no reason to insert any fiction into it. I, I mean, it, it's it, you couldn't script it better. And you know, it's funny. I've I've done some book events where I've kind of you know occasionally I've had to explain the book to people that don't necessarily know that much about it. And I say, yeah, this all culminates in a high noon showdown where uh, Chinatown sends their young ace over to fight Bruce behind locked doors. And people are like, wait, this really happened? Right, right. You know, like you're not just making up, you know, you're not just telling us your favorite scene from like, you know, your favorite Kung Fu movie or something. Right. Uh, so it's, I, I mean, this all really went down here in, uh, you know, in autumn of 64. Uh, again, getting back to that culture of why, or the, excuse me, that question of why Wong Jackman, uh, there's a few different theories on it. One is that in a sort of, uh, macho show of self-promotion. Uh, Wong Jackman knew that he was about to open a school in Chinatown, which is true, and it was sort of seen as this opportunistic moment. If he goes over and beats Bruce Lee, you know, his school will just have very good enrollment and be off and running. Right. Another theory, which I find really compelling, and I think there's an awful lot of evidence for, is that Wong Jackman was essentially manipulated into the fight without really understanding sort of the stakes of what was happening, that he was sort of like the, you know, young kid on the schoolyard who was goaded into fighting someone without really understanding what was happening. Uh, Again, in contrast to the movie, uh, Bruce Lee and Wong Jackman had never met prior to the fight. Right, right. You know, which is really amazing to think about. And and I think it leads uh, it lends some credibility to that argument that Wong Jackman didn't necessarily know what, you know, he was getting into. But again, these you know, that fight is not only one of the most well-known uh, fights, if not the most well-known fight in modern martial arts history, but it is still extremely controversial. I mean, 50 years later, uh, you know, all you got to do is go on to some chat room or something and and see people, you know, 
hash it out and, and argue over it. I mean, and, and I could even say in the Bay Area and, and amongst those two camps, I mean, it's still a really touchy topic. I mean, there's still tension over it. This new movie, I, I should point out, is is very closely tied to the to the Wong Jackman camp. In fact, he's he's I think cited in the credits as some sort of consultant, and the the movie is based upon an article written by one of his student, former students. So, uh, can you go into the the specifics of the fight, which, as you uh, as you just mentioned, is still hugely controversial. Nobody uh, outside of the six or seven people that were there at the time really knows what happened. So there was an article that was written, you pointed out in the book, that kind of guessed at what happened and just kind of blew all of the details out of proportion. So what really went down in that room? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that was so fascinating to me, like when I kind of first came to the topic, was how little it had been documented. And, you know, so what I try to do as a journalist was I try to identify who was in the room down to an individual, why, who were they, why were they there, and, and what's, what was their take on the fight? And if you look at that chapter in my book, the entire chapter is based upon firsthand accounts. Because trust me, I, I, I conducted over 100 interviews for this book, and <laughs> everyone, everyone has a story about this fight. I mean, I heard the most ridiculous, far-flung, you know, urban mythology stories you can imagine. I mean, I heard that Wong, uh, Bruce Lee had slammed Wong Jackman's head through the wall, and uh, you know the neighbors called the cops because you know they busted the wall in. Uh, someone else told me that that Bruce Lee had suffered internal injuries from the fight, you know, so so getting into like dim mock sort of territory <laughs> kind of thing, you know. So it's crazy. What? Yes, there were there were seven people in the room. Five of them had come over with uh, Wong Jackman from Chinatown. And uh, the two with Bruce Lee were uh, his his new wife, Linda Lee, who was eight months pregnant at the time. Yep. And Bruce's very close colleague in Oakland, uh, James Lee. Uh, no relation, but I, I mean, James Lee is that other reason, essentially, why Bruce had gravitated back to the Bay Area. Right. Uh, they were just on the wavelength in terms of their martial arts viewpoints. Over with the Chinatown crew... Um, two of the people that came over with, with Wong Jackman were martial artists within that Chinatown culture. The three other people that came over were kind of just troublemakers <laughs> who were just there basically to watch the fight and then go back to Chinatown to gossip about it. Okay, so here you have, you know, to go into someone's school and challenge them. And to bring a bunch of people with you and to, uh, not for nothing, to do it in front of someone's pregnant wife, uh, you know, I, I mean, these are high stakes and, and, and Bruce is furious. Yeah. All right. Bruce Lee is absolutely furious. And uh, they come in, they try and set terms and Bruce quickly shouts them down again into his whole, you know, viewpoint is, you know, what do you mean? Like, we're, we're here for a fight. There are no rules. Like, let's fight. And, um, you know, one of the things that's, that's so frustrating to read about, like, the things that are out there now in the wake of the movie is that there's all these notions of, like, no one knows exactly what happened. The fight might have lasted for 20 minutes. <laughs> I, I mean, that's just ridiculous. There, there's no tangible, uh, you know, there's no credible source that says those kind of things. And if you look at the people in the room and what they say, 
their their accounts all match up. And and despite the fact that they're on opposite sides of the rooms with this epic tension and battle happening between them, they generally give the same accounts. So the the fight starts quickly. Bruce uh, lands the opening blow. He very uh, quickly uh, moves across the floor and and strikes Wong Jackman just above the eye. Uh, the fight then gets very fast and very furious and spills around the room. Uh, Wong Jackman does land, I really nearly misses a huge blow on Bruce, but just kind of misses him uh, past the chin on sort of a wide arcing punch, uh, which instead comes down across uh, like Bruce's neck and the top of his chest. Uh, but Bruce, being a Wing Chun practitioner, really presses in on Wong Jackman. And this is important because uh, not only is that, you know, sort of essential Wing Chun, but Wong Jackman's style is a expansive style that requires some space. Right. So he has this opponent on top of him uh, just bearing down on him constantly. Uh, you know, there's different notions as to whether, you know, Wong Jackman sort of turned and run or whether he was just sort of backpedaling to try and find that space. Uh, but as the fight spills around the room, uh, he loses his footing as Bruce is bearing down on him. And eventually Bruce is on top of him, uh, uh, just sort of pummeling him uh, and yelling at him in Cantonese, do you yield, do you yield? Uh, at, at which point, you know, uh, Wong Jackman had, had no choice but to give up. The, the whole affair w- was very fast. Um, but not 11 seconds fast. No, and that's the that's I appreciate you pointing that out. That that really is the whole point. Right. Is Bruce has been, you know, for you know, a while now at this point, been standing up on stage and advocate, you know, expressing how uh how effective his approach is and 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 putting other people down for theirs. And now here he faces a, a very skilled opponent. And he can't put him away in the way that he put away his opponent in Seattle. He he doesn't get the knockout. It goes way too long. He can't really like you know get in and make his technique work. And he, even though he wins the fight, he has this huge moment of introspection where he realizes that never mind criticizing everyone else, he himself needs to evolve beyond where he's at. Uh, that applies not only to his technique, but also to his physical conditioning. He felt like he came up really short. He got really winded and just like wasn't up to the task of enduring the fight. And it's it's this key moment for Bruce Lee because from there, he starts to tangibly construct Jeet Kune Do, which will be his personalized style that he becomes known for. Uh, and he really starts to pursue bodybuilding uh, as, as a, you know, sort of an essential component of his martial arts. Uh, so this fight has a huge effect on his, tra- his trajectory and his evolution. And I, I asked Linda Lee, I, I said, so, so what do you think? If, if he wins this fight in the same way that he won in Seattle, you know, where does, where does he go from there? And she, and she was just like, you know, it, he wouldn't have evolved in the way that he did. Like he needed a sort of setback. To, to really take it to that next level. And, and that's why the fight's so fascinating. 
you know, this new film, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, they're kind of pushing it in that they basically have Wong Jackman explain, you know, sort of what is Bruce Lee's martial arts worldview and Jeet Kune Do sort of principles to him, which, uh, you know, is really getting into murky territory. Right, right. And that's the that's the kind of magical irony about that whole fight, right? After raging so hard about robotically following systems and styles, this fight really spurred him to look at the style that he's been promoting this whole time and and, and do a complete 180 and, and start over again, essentially. Many of the core ideas in Jeet Kune Do are, are very, you know, Wing Chun style ideas. I mean, I mean, the notion of, uh, you know, economy, the idea of economy of movement and uh, simplicity and things like that. Those are all very, you know, G, uh, Wing Chun ideas. Uh, but Bruce wanted to evolve it. And, and you know, it also, I, I should point out, it has a lot to do with what he w- was talking about at the time. You know, when he hooks up with this this very progressive camp in Oakland, uh, these guys are constantly having these sort of late night think tank sessions where they're like up all night just discussing technique and discussing, you know, past fights that they had. And the emphasis in Oakland when he was in Oakland is, you know, does it work? Uh, and, and they didn't care what the system was. They, they were happy to borrow from one system to another and sort of compile some. Uh, but what they were doing was sort of breaking out of sort of a rigid viewpoint of like this one system or this one system. So, you know, in terms of Bruce getting cited as sort of a godfather of MMA, um, it, it sort of it sort of gets into those notions of, of what they were talking about. Not only the mixing of styles, but sort of the emphasis on real viability in terms of fighting technique. Fascinating stuff. So where can people go to find this book? Yeah, you know, uh, the book's available on uh, Amazon. Actually, I know, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Bruce Lee's daughter is a big fan of the book, and uh, they have, uh, you know, an official Bruce Lee site, which actually sells it. Okay. And, uh, you, you know, I, I, I see it in a lot of bookstores still. I can never tell where it's going to be and where it's not going to be. So, you know, you might have to ask them to order it for you. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's readily available online and, and such. Fascinating stuff. It was really a, a great read. Um, just uh, for my own uh, discovery of all that stuff that really kind of built Bruce Lee up. I wish you the best of luck with the book. And again, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. And go. Hey, everybody. I'm here to talk to you about a new fun podcast called One More Drink. It is a show about life, love, and everything nerdy. So if you're into comic books, dating, other kind of crazy, goofy things that we're going to talk about. You can join me, Blake, April, Yo, Terrence, Hello, everyone. and Andres. Hey, guys. Every single Friday for some fun conversations and some fun talks. My mom likes it, and she has a degree from a college, so that must tell you something. Obviously, this is the show for you, it's the show for me, it's the show for everybody. One more drink every Friday, wherever <laughs> podcasts are found. <laughs> The first Poison Clan rocks the word nunchaku is Okinawa. Hey, do you like movies? Hey, do you like podcasts? If you do, then come on down and listen to the Home Video Hustle podcast, homie. Hustle, hustle. Every Friday, we talk about whatever movie PJ picks out the bag. What does that mean? Well, every Wednesday on our YouTube page, I pick a bunch of movies at random. Sometimes there's a theme to it, sometimes not. PJ picks the movie out, and guess what? 
We watch it on Friday. We talk about it for about maybe an hour, hour and a half, whatever we feel like doing. Might give you something good to watch, baby. Come on down every Friday. So come get your hustle on with Home Video Hustle. You can find the show on any podcatcher app, or you can come down to homevideohustle.popping.com. All of them in one place for you. So you can go ahead and binge it like it's Netflix. We ain't the defenders. Yeah. But I like to think we a little bit better than that. <laughs> come out at your boys, man. Come chill with us. Peace. Peace. My sincere thanks to Charles Russo for coming on to talk about his book, Striking Distance, Bruce Lee and the Dawn of Martial Arts in America. It's available on Amazon as well as on BruceLee.com, so go check it out if you're a fan of The Little Dragon. Shoutouts to the Castaways on Twitter, where you can find and follow me at Kung Fu Drive-In, especially if you're entered into the contest to win a set of nunchucks handmade by USA Nunchaku. Did you get that first clue? Until next time, Poison Clan, peace. Poison Clan rocks the world. Some action, drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting. Ha! This time we swap, we smash the place up with a dragon claws. We're walking to the tea house, ready for some action. Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting. Ha! This time we swap, we smash the place up with a dragon claws. I see the iron fisted monk upon the daily prayers. Shouting monks on the hands, running down the thousand stairs. The fate of Lee Khan, now's in King Yu's hands. With the fearless idea, roaming over the land. Yeah, the little bit soldier is older than wiser. He wants a world of peace because he doesn't want to fight. Yo, got the venom mob laying down the law. Bruce Lee delivered kicks, guarantees the great jars. Fight for the cars, then pause here. The applause, not again, back kicks will defeat the outlaws. Very good, but more. Don't hit back Yeah, the death jewel's here David is coming back The Tai Chi master Jet Li's even faster The child a little drink Because he is the drunken master Once upon a time in China Rosamund Kwan is real fine But see Maggie Chung is finer Golden Swallow has arrived Shang-Chi movies Will the hero will survive We've got the brave archer Make his way to the top Of the mountain gonna fight May as well pick the spot Yeah, the sky goes black Cause the vampire's back We've got Lam Ching Ying To kill them all So stand back You place the black magic On the soul of the sword and our sword will travel until his body's on floors Yeah, Wing Chun Shaolin and Mantis style Yeah, defeat the enemy and watch him run for miles Blood will spill now on the mountain tops When we bring back the soul of the legendary Pops Walk to the tea house, belly for some action Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting Ha! This time it's war We smash the place up with a dragon claws We're walking to the tea house, belly for some action Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting Ha! This time it's war, we smash the place up with a dragon claw. See, it's a game of death, yo, you're facing the big boss. It's once upon a time in China, counting the TikTok. The Shogun assassin slashing blood is just drip drop. The head kick, neck drop, balance, the won't stop. Wanna kill Bill, better get the assassins. He's got Irma dressed in yellow, but she isn't the dragon, but in the tea rooms. That's where it'll happen, she got the bodies on the floor. When the blood, it'll splatter against the wall. No fear at all, to kill them all. There's always blood spilled when you head into a war. Fearless. Unleashed, the fist of legend that the car jet I'm Bolo Young, yo, I'll always be a beast. You rumble in the Bronx, yo, I'm rumbling the streets. And it's simple, see the facts are these. It's only ever gonna be one Bruce Lee. Walk into the tea house, ready for some action. Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting. Ha! This time it's war, to smash the place up with a dragon claws. We're walking to the tea house, ready for some action. Drink a little wine.